0: Good morning. The scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 29 and Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 24. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go in to her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Hear the word of the Lord today.
1: I won't ask how many of you were out and about on Wednesday night, uh, but suffice it to say the surrounding neighborhoods were overrun with children. I had a meeting that night and folks were coming over to our house and everybody walked in the door, kept saying, I almost hit a kid in all black. And the children, surprise, surprise, were for the most part pretending to be someone that they are not. It's kind of what you do on Halloween. So you had four-year-olds pretending to be Iron Man. You had seven-year-olds pretending to be Wonder Woman. Uh, you had nine year olds pretending to be stormtroopers, Halloween sugar high, here we come. I, I heard from someone that, don't know, ask me how they do these studies, but it's like over a thousand calories per kid get consumed that night. I, I would argue that for the most part, pretending to be someone you're not is innocent, it's fun, it's harmless, nobody's going to get hurt, hopefully, because little girl dressed up as Wonder Woman. But I would remind you or inform you, in case this is a new thought, that not all acts of pretense can be commended. Not every act of make-believe merits your approval because there are some acts of make-believe, of pretending, that actually end in sin and death. What do I what do I mean by that? Would you realize friend that the very entrance of evil into God's good and perfect world came about as the result of someone pretending to be something they are not? What did what did the first man and woman pretend to be? They pretended to be God. Think about it. How how did the serpent convince them to sin? To reject God's authority and and eat the forbidden fruit? Well, he sealed the deal in Genesis 3, 5. Listen, he said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God. We've, We've been playing this same fatal game ever since. I mean, think about it. Why, why do we manipulate our friends to compel them to do what we want? Why, why do we yell at our kids when they violate the laws of our kingdom? Why, why do we respond to the threat of suffering by trying to control our lives and plan for every contingency instead of entrusting our lives to the one who gives us every breath we ever take? there's a reason we do that. It's because if we're honest, we're pretending to be God. We love to play God. Every one of us. Not just on Halloween. And that, I'm convinced, is why we need this passage. Stay with me. Because we love to play God, we need this passage. Why? Well, remember the context here, okay? So God has just finished making some incredible promises to this guy named Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. What did he say to Jacob at Bethel? Jacob, check this out. I'm going to give you all the land you can see, I'm going to give you offspring, kids, descendants more than you can number. I'm gonna channel nothing less than all of God's divine blessings to the entire world through your offspring, pal. That's what God promised him. Genesis 28, 15 was was just the crowning touch. Listen, behold, God said to Jacob, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. If God appeared to you and said that kind of thing to you, how would you respond? What did Jacob and his family members all proceed to do in Genesis 29 and 30? What did they do? Every one of them tried to secure God's blessing, especially the offspring blessing, right? Right? They tried to secure it, especially that one, through human effort. That's what they did. They they looked to people, starting with themselves, to achieve and deliver what only God can provide. They pretended to be God. They put on their God costume. They played God. And it doesn't work. It didn't work. It it never works. Why not? Here's the main point of this entire passage, okay? Here's why it didn't work. Because God's blessings cannot be secured through human effort, church. The blessings of God can only be received as a gift of grace. You can't secure, you can't lay hold of, you can't pull out of his reluctant hands the blessings of God through human effort, You can only receive them as a gift of grace. That's the point of the passage. In other words, God God doesn't wave his blessings in front of us like some kind of carrot and say, come and get it if you can. And then just step back and watch with, with smug satisfaction as we do whatever it takes, bargain, strive, fight, or sin in order to grab it. He's not doing that. Okay, what's he doing? He's bringing his blessings to pass in his power as an expression of his undeserved favor on you. That's what he's doing. So what's the claim on us? We need to stop looking to man to do what only God can accomplish. We've got to stop that church. We have to stop looking to man to provide the blessings that only God can give. And there are several reasons why that's the case. Why we need to stop looking to man to give us what only God can provide in these two chapters, okay? So let me point out a couple of them. Point number one, why do we need to stop looking to man to provide the blessings that only God can give? Reason one, God governs the course of our lives. Not you, not the people around you, Not the people who are going to get elected on Tuesday. God governs the course of our lives. Think about this. Do do you think it was an accident? You think it's an accident that Jacob, look at verse 1, chapter 29, came to the land of the people of the east unharmed. All the way from Beersheba. That's a long, like, months and months and months kind of walking dusty roads journey. Do you think it's an accident that when he arrived in the land... Which, which is actually a fairly large place, and keep in mind, he wasn't using Google Maps to get there, that he stumbled upon, look at verse two, a well in the field near his uncle's home. You think that was an accident? You think it's an accident that at exactly that moment, check it out. Rachel's walking toward that well, in that place by his uncle's home. None of those events is an accident, friends. None of that. Every one of them reflects the the hidden but very real hand of a sovereign God who's working and moving and and doing everything he promised to do for Jacob in Genesis 28, right? What's he doing? He's keeping Jacob. He's guiding Jacob. He's providing for Jacob. Notice the Lord doesn't explicitly say anything in the first 14 verses of Genesis 29. Furthermore, Genesis 29, first 14 verses, God isn't actually, we're not told by the narrator here that God is doing anything. It's kind of like the the Book of Ruth. <laughs> his name's not there, but that doesn't change the fact that his fingerprints are all over this sequence of events, right? God is governing the course of this guy's life, and friends, God hasn't stopped working in the same way today. He's doing the same thing today. What, what does that mean? Okay, well, one thing it means is that one of the most important ways that you can encourage somebody let's just get very practical for a moment, is by pointing out to them where you see God at work in their life. It's one of the best things you can do for someone to point out, here's where I see God in your specific circumstances, bringing a specific provision that's not random or accidental, but rather reflects the loving providence of a God who keeps his promises. So you go up to somebody and you say, I see God governing the course of your life. You are growing in gentleness to your kids. Do you see that? You you go up to someone and say, several weeks ago, you told me that you were struggling to trust God with your finances. And I couldn't help but notice you participated in the offering this morning. I see God working in you, sister. We could just give so many examples of that. Why, why is that kind of encouragement so important, friends? The kind of encouragement that, that gets close to someone and says, beep, 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 God isn't working you. Do you see it? Well, it's important because so often we just charge through our life completely unaware of the ways God is blessing us. In other words, we're just like Jacob. We're just like Jacob. Why do I say that? Well, because there's a striking contrast between the way Abraham's servant responded, Genesis 24, when God led him to Laban's family to obtain a wife for Isaac, and the way Jacob responds when God leads him to Laban's family, same family, maybe the same well even, to get a wife for himself. Check this out Genesis 24, Abraham's servant. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. What's Jacob do? Genesis 29 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. What's the difference? Do do some comparison contrast here, okay? Both experience God's good providence, right? They showed up at the right well at the right time with the right girl walking toward him. That's crazy. That's God governing the course of events. Both of them are filled with emotion. But notice this, any expression of gratitude toward the Lord is distinctly absent from Jacob's response. Why is that? Well, I would argue it's because Jacob still thinks of God's blessings as something he secures through his own strength, his own willpower. And you can see that in the way he responds when he sees Rachel approaching the well. (laughs) Okay? So again, when, when Abraham's servant, decades earlier, approaches the well and sees Rebecca walking toward him, What does he do? He he expresses his complete and total dependence on the Lord by crying out to God for wisdom and guidance. What does Jacob do? Look at verse 10, chapter 29. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. Why do you think Genesis goes into so much detail about how the shepherds had to wait till there were at least three or four of them, if not more, together in order to move the stone? Translation: It is a ridiculously big stone. That's not fluff. So, to put it rather bluntly, the girl walks up, and instead of saying, "Lord, is this the one?" Jacob shows off his guns which I don't have, <laughs> but Jacob did, okay? So, so instead of expressing his dependence on the Lord or giving thanks to the Lord or waiting on the Lord, Jacob tries to secure God's blessing through his own willpower, literally. You don't have to work hard to see this, okay? And, and I would argue, church, this is so easy to do, even if you don't have guns, okay? Providing for your family is a good thing, Right? So what do we do? We charge ahead and we keep putting in 80 hours at work, ignoring the priority of discipling our kids and loving our neighbors. We do that. Getting an A, those of you who are in class, is a good thing, right? Right? So what do we do? We charge ahead with 24-7 studying and justify our failure to be a good friend. That takes time. And our failure to study God's word. That too takes time because we're trying to get an A. Having a husband or a wife, if you're married, who fears the Lord, loves God, practices spiritual disciplines, takes care of themselves, doesn't overeat, good things... Yes, absolutely. So what do we do? We charge ahead and we nag and berate and elbow and remind them until we manipulate them into submission. What's the problem with every one of those scenarios? What's going wrong with every one of those? What we're seeking is good, right? Right? Those are good things, but instead of humbly depending on God to bring his blessings to pass, we're striving to make it happen on our own. That's what we're doing. And and the fallout from that approach is inevitable, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and, and that has been the whole pattern of Jacob's life, right? So what did he try to do? He tried to secure God's blessing through his own effort when he manipulated his older brother Esau into giving him his birthright. What did he do after that? Well, didn't stop there. He deceived his dad and his brother with help of his mom when he tricked Isaac, his dad, into blessing him before he died instead of blessing his older brother, Esau. What's the theme? Jacob is all about securing God's blessings through me, my own strength. And I think that after his encounter with God at Bethel, in Genesis 28, his pride, because that's what it is, right? His pride is less obvious. God's beginning to humble him, but but self-reliance is still his go-to option. So immediately after God proves that he's the one governing the course of Jacob's life, brought him to exactly the right place, Jacob still immediately charges ahead in his own strength. Literally, check out my human massive biceps. It's what he's doing. He's proud. He's bought the lie that Jacob governs the course of Jacob's life. Instead of remembering, it's God who governs the course of our lives. So, what does God do? What does God do? It's amazing to me. He uses a Jacob, another liar, another deceiver, to humble Jacob by giving the guy a taste of his own medicine. That's what he does. Why? Why? Because the Lord doesn't just govern or control the course of our lives. He also frustrates the plans of the proud. He frustrates the plans of the proud. Where do we see this? Well, initially, right, everything seems to go smashingly well. So Laban seems to love Jacob. Rachel is drop dead gorgeous. And Jacob thinks Laban has agreed to give him Rachel in exchange for seven years of hard work. Now, if you're not familiar with how this thing went down, you're thinking, dude, how about you just ask if you can marry her, like, whisk her away. Didn't work quite like that. You were expected as the groom to pay a bride price. And you need to know that seven years was a really, really, really high bride price. It wasn't what Laban requested. It's what Jacob recommended. I'll do this. A far lower sum would have been culturally acceptable. And that seven-year offer shows just how badly Jacob wants Rachel and how much he wants to make sure I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to go three extra miles to make sure I get what I want and bring God's blessing to pass. So Laban seems to agree to the deal and seven years go by. Look at verse 20. I love this. Yet they seem to Jacob but a few days because of the love he had for her. But then of course the night of the wedding arrives and Laban chooses in that moment to do the unthinkable. So he, he brings Rachel's older sister Leah in the dark of the tent after Jacob has no doubt held probably one too many festive beverages. And Jacob sleeps with her, not Rachel. And then in the morning, look at verse 25. He says these words, behold. It was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country. Oh, man. That's not just information. To give the younger before the firstborn. Lay aside Laban and Leah's dishonesty for a moment, okay? If there was ever an example of poetic justice, this is it. What's the implied critique in Laban's retort? I don't know about your country, Jacob, but in our country, the younger doesn't get to take precedence over the firstborn. You just just picture him staggering. You realize that's exactly what Jacob has been trying to do his entire adult life. He's he's been striving to secure God's blessing in his own strength by gaining superiority over his firstborn brother Esau. Now, had had God chosen Esau before the brothers were even born to be submitted to Jacob's authority? Had he elected Jacob over Esau? Yes. Okay? Okay. Did that justify Jacob's deceitful manipulation and dishonesty? Absolutely not. What should Jacob have done? He should have trusted God to bring his birth oracle to pass. Right? After all, what's point number one? God governs the course of our lives. Okay, he the one who brought Jacob to Laban's house. but, But Jacob's continued striving proves that he has yet to humbly recognize the Lord as the gracious source of every blessing. And finally, he came face to face with the consequences of his sin. The deceiver was deceived. There's a warning in there for us, church. And it's this, the loving providence of God, the fact that it is God who governs the course of our lives, does not undo the real consequences of our sin. It doesn't undo that. It doesn't backspace that. Listen to me. Does God offer us complete and total cleansing from the guilt of all our sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Yes. When God cleanses our sin and forgives our sin, does does he remove the shame of our sin such that our identity, the fundamental answer to the who am I question is no longer defined by your sin, Christian? Yes. Yes. When our identity is no longer defined by sin and God loves and welcomes us not because of what we do but because of what Christ has done, does that take away the painful consequences of our continued sin? No. Proverbs 3 verse 11. My son. My son do not despise the lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights Hebrews 12:10 for they the fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but the Father disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness what what Laban did was terribly wrong, right? And and Leah is not exactly commended for her character by her presumed compliance with this scheme, but but listen to this. Their actions are not the main storyline here, okay? The main storyline is the discipline of God, the justice of God. Because for the first time in Jacob's life, his, his carefully laid plans, they just dissolve like sand between his fingers. He's, he's confronted with the futility of his own wisdom and understanding. Right? His, his pride had what? It had literally blinded him to the reality that he couldn't achieve, he couldn't secure, he couldn't grasp God's blessings through his own effort. He was completely dependent on the Lord to provide. Starting with the blessing of a wife. And the Lord was merciful to Jacob, right? He he gave him Rachel, but it came at a cost. Another seven years of of hard labor and decades of turmoil in, in his family. And that turmoil, that conflict, we just get a little glimpse of it in chapter 30. That would prove to be a lifelong reminder to the proud man that God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Lord loved Jacob enough to confront him with the futility of his own strength and striving. And when God does that, friends, because he's, in case you didn't know this, he's still doing that today, it hurts. It really hurts. It, it hurts to be humbled. So how do we respond? If right now in your life, you recognize that in some way, God has exposed how impotent your strength and planning and scheming and grasping is, how do we respond? Do we, do we lash out in anger? and take revenge on the human instrument of divine discipline? do we recoil in in self-pity and and nurse a grudge of bitterness against the Lord? Because you didn't keep your word, you aren't good to me, because look at this mess. Well, I'd argue we need to do two things, church. When God's humbling you, two things. First, remember that the Lord disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us for our good because he loves us. He loves you if you're his, if you're in Christ. And second, hear this carefully. We remember he disciplines us for good and we refuse, listen to this, to twist the father's loving discipline into yet another exercise in self-effort and self-sufficiency by trying to learn our lesson and escape from the pain of our consequences as fast as possible. You know, we think, well, maybe if I can set a new land speed record for getting my spiritual act together, all this painful like discipline stuff that we just all want to get beyond will just go away and I can bring on the good life. So what do I got to do? What do I got to learn? Like, uh, give me counsel. Okay, what do you think I need to learn? Okay, what do you think I need? Somebody tell me what to change to end this. And sometimes they make an appointment with me. And what we need to hear in that moment, friends, is that that response to the Lord's discipline is precisely the kind of self-sufficient arrogance that got Jacob into trouble in the first place. Humility doesn't bemoan or bewail the Lord's discipline. Humility doesn't run from the Lord's discipline. Humility embraces the Lord's discipline and cries out to the Father for help to trust his love in the midst of it. So why should we stop trying to secure God's blessing through our own efforts? First, because God governs the course of our lives, not us. Second, because God frustrates the plans of the proud. In other words, you try to play God, he'll see to it, that doesn't go on forever. Here's the third reason. Why do we need to stop looking to man to give us, including ourselves, when only God can? Reason three, because God delivers his blessing through our weaknesses. He governs the course of our lives, He humbles, he frustrates, he opposes the plans of the proud and best of all, he delivers his blessing through our weaknesses. So if you thought that the mess in Isaac's family from previous chapters was bad, Jacob's family takes this like sordid tale, God's people are in a pile of mud to a whole new level. Look at chapter 29, verse 30. And Jacob loved Rachel more than, than Leah, I bet. By the way, there are, there's not one harmonious example of polygamy in the entire Bible, okay? Not one, and it may have been the social custom of the day, but it was never God's plan, why? Because God's plan from the beginning of creation, go back and read Genesis two this afternoon if you need to, is what? One man with one woman, united in the covenant of marriage for life. You twist that up, you corrupt that plan, you do that, you mess with it in a thousand ways that we are all so prone in the creativity of our sin to mess with it, you do that at your own peril. So what happened? Leah has children, but lacks love. Right? Rachel has love, but lacks children. And there are so many lessons that we could learn from 2931 all the way through 3024. But, but let me just briefly point out a few of them that help us understand how God responds to our own weakness and sin. Okay? Here's the first. What do we see here? One, one, Our plight is not hidden. Plight's not hidden. Genesis 29, 31. Look there, friend. This single verse teaches us something remarkable about the character of God. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Imagine how Leah must have felt. I have a husband, but he doesn't love me. I'm in a relationship I can't get away from and this man hates me. It's the ultimate, I'm trapped in oppression. I think some of you probably feel like you're in that kind of relationship. It might be a spouse, might be a coworker. It might, might be a family member, somebody that, that you want to love and so wish they loved you. And everything about the relationship says they they should love you. You're you're trying to honor them, you're trying to serve them, you're trying to bless them, but but no matter how long or how much you do that, it's just animosity back at you and oppression back at you. That was Leah's experience with Jacob. So how did the Lord respond? What did he do? He chose what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He he opened Leah's womb, right? And made her exceedingly fruitful. He brought blessing in the midst of suffering. But don't miss, look back at verse 31. Why the Lord did that. It's not just that he opened a room, he opened it for a reason. What's the reason? The Lord saw her. The Lord saw her. In other words, Leah wasn't just a divine data point. Hello, Leah, you are a human being, 6,493,736,001. No, he saw her and he specifically saw, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. So her husband's eyes were closed to her pain. Her sister's eyes were closed to her pain. Whose eyes were fully open to her pain? God's eyes. Friend, if you're the Lord's, if you're in Christ, you are never alone in your suffering. You're never alone. God is intimately aware. Not one word of hatred that has come your way escapes his ears or escapes his gaze. And he is moved and affected by the oppression you were experiencing. How do I say that? How do I dare say that to you when you think, if that was true, how come he's not intervening right now, Williams? Well, I say that to you because of Psalm 10, verse 10. Speaking of sinful men, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. The wicked, he says in his heart, God has forgotten He's hidden in his face, He will never see it, but you do see. You see, He sees, friend. For you, God, you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. you have been the helper of the fatherless. Do you realize? that the Lord didn't just respond to Leah's oppression by saying, here's how I'm gonna humble the pride. Here's how I'm gonna reverse the logic and wisdom of the world. I'm gonna choose what is despised. I'm gonna give her children. You realize, he didn't just give her children. You know what kind of children he gave her? He gave her Levi and Judah. What's that about? Levi's the priestly tribe. Judah's the kingly tribe. And it's to the line of Judah that Jesus himself was born. Okay, that's been God's MO from the beginning, friends. We look at Leah, maybe you look at yourself and you think what good can come from a despised wife? God looks at Leah, God sees Leah and says, it's through her children that I'm gonna redeem all of these people from the very sin that is leading to her oppression. That's how God works. Our plight is not hidden from the Lord. Second, subpoint: point, our interpretation is not authoritative. Plight's not hidden, our interpretation is authoritative. What do I mean by this? Okay, well, listen carefully. The naming of Jacob's sons in this passage by their moms or mothers reflect their mom's interpretation of the significance of their birth. Okay? So, for example, some of the names are an expression of worship, like Simeon, related to the Hebrew word for hears. Leah is saying, God has heard me, I'm grateful to the Lord for Simeon. Other names, they're not an expression of worship, they're an expression of sin. So like Naphtali sounds like the Hebrew for wrestled, why did Rachel name him that? Because she is arrogantly ambitious to outdo her sister in childbearing. Some are worship, some are sin. And I I highlight the interpretive function of the names because I think it points us to a, a spiritual temptation that we all face when we feel stuck in the throes of weakness and sin. What's that? Here's the temptation, the temptation, is to try and solve the problem in our own strength, listen, and conclude that if our solution seems to work, it must mean God approves of our actions. I'll say that again. Our temptation is to try to solve the problem in our own strength. And then if as we do that, lo and behold, the problem seems to go away, we presume God must approve of my actions. So follow me here. What does Rachel do when she envies her sister's fruitfulness? Three things. She reveals that she's made children an idol. Her functional God by declaring to Jacob, chapter 30, verse 1, look there. Give me children or I shall die. I want to elaborate on that. That's what we sound like when we have an idol. Second, instead of looking to God for help, she demands That a man, in this case Jacob, provide for her what only God can provide. And note the implied no in response to Jacob's rhetorical question. Hello Rachel, am I in the place of God? Is quite the ironic indictment of the entire pattern of his life. God's God's working in him. Even through his own angry outbursts, he's he's beginning to speak truth. Truth. So she reveals she's got an idol. She demands that man give her what only God can provide. And lastly, she, she comes up with her own remedy, Rachel does, and she gives Jacob, her maidservant, Bilha as a substitute wife. Lo and behold, Bilhah gets pregnant. And how does Rachel interpret this pregnancy? Genesis 30, verse six, look there. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. She thinks. God heard her demand for children and chose to satisfy her demand through Bilhah. Why do we know that is not at all the correct interpretation of the situation? (laughs) Two reasons. First, because Abraham and Sarah's sad experience with the whole, let's respond to barrenness by trying to substitute wife thing, Hagar, didn't go well at all earlier in Genesis. It created a mess. God's not endorsing the substitute wife approach. That's blindingly clear from Hagar and Ishmael. Second, look at Genesis 30 verse 22. This directly contradicts Rachel's assessment of the situation. Several years after Bilhah gave birth to Dan and a bunch of other kids came their way, we read, then, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and, and opened her womb. Not back then, Rachel, now. So, so was Dan a gift from the Lord, despite the fact that he was the fruit of Jacob and Rachel's unbelief and sin? Yes. <laughs> Children are always a gift from the Lord, right? No matter how they come. But was Rachel correct and interpreting Dan's birth as a divine vindication of her methods no think of it this way the presence of a gift is not an endorsement by the giver the presence of a gift is not an endorsement by the giver. Don't don't make that assumption, friends. Don't don't assume that if you receive a blessing, whether it's a child or promotion, a spouse, or any other gift, that that must mean you're walking in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord and God must be approving of everything you are doing to address your weaknesses. Don't assume that. See, sometimes people come to me and they say things like this, okay? Pastor Matthew, I've got good news, great news. You know, things were looking really bad in my life. Remember that? Yeah. Well, I have made some significant, big time changes in the way I live, and now everything is great, man. I can just feel God smiling on me. We we are like onward and upward to glory. Praise the Lord. Well, maybe God's smiling on you, friend, but maybe He's not. Maybe you're still trying to overcome your weaknesses or sins in your own strength. And these apparent blessings in your life are not signs of God's approval, they're expressions of His mercy. Maybe He's not blessing you because of your actions, maybe He's blessing you despite your actions. Matthew 5:45. For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Our plight's not hidden. Our interpretation is not authoritative. Final point under this heading, our inability is not decisive. Your inability, friend, is not decisive, okay? So so we're gonna kind of tie it all together now as we conclude. The, The bookends of this third section in the passage help us keep the main point in view, okay? So Genesis 29, verse 31. What do we read there? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now flip over to Genesis 30, verse 22. What do we read there? Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and God opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. What's the point of the bookends? Usually the meaning of a narrative is found in the bookends. Okay, what's the point? The blessing of fruitfulness isn't ultimately the achievement of men. It is what? A gift from God. It's a gift from God. Why, why, think about it. Why did God wait seven years to give Rachel, at least seven years, a child of her own? He did that to prove her utter inability to bring his blessings to pass through her power and to prove that her inability is not decisive in governing and determining the spiritual fruitfulness of her life. God's is. That's why he rolled like that. God's power was decisive and it will always be decisive. And so over the course of seven years, he gave offspring to Rachel and Leah in a way that proved again and again, God's blessings come to pass, not through the striving of men, but through the power of God. It's still true today, friend. Still true today. Don't don't respond to weakness or lack in your life by making the blessing you long for an idol, by demanding that people give you what only God can provide, by trying to make things work out in your own strength. Don't do that. Don't do that. Trust the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who listens, and the God who delights to deliver his blessings through our weakness. That's the point. You know, I think you can listen to a message like this and you can say, all right, Matthew, I get it. Don't try to make life work on my own. Trust God. That's not new. Why are you telling me that? Well, for the same reason I need to be told that, because I forget it every morning I wake up. Our face not perfect, at least not in this life. Our, our, our trust in God will always be mixed with self-sufficient striving. So to whatever degree you feel that, to whatever degree you're like me and you're tempted to lose heart, take heart. Why? Why? Because God didn't listen and provide for these women because their faith was perfect. Right? Leah, Rachel, they were still striving. They were still fighting. I mean, even even Leah's decision to name her fifth son Issachar, which sounds like what? The Hebrew word for wages reveals an entirely works-based understanding of how things roll between her and God. There's no grace in that. She doesn't even completely understand grace, yet the Lord still blessed her. The Lord still had mercy on her. Even when, as he gives another blessing, they use God's blessings to exalt themselves and sow discord in their family. The Lord just keeps right on, faithfully fulfilling all the promises that he made to Jacob back in chapter 28. What does that teach us? What teaches us that God isn't just bringing his blessing to pass despite human weakness and sin. He's actually doing it through human weakness and sin, friends. That's how he rolls. We we, we can't secure his blessings through our strength, but we don't need to despair about that because it's precisely our weaknesses and our sins that God says, that's what I want to use. So don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged when you look at your, your weak faith in the Lord and you think, well, if that's what I have to do in order to receive all these blessings, Pastor Matthew's talking about as a gift, then bye-bye blessings. No, take heart. God delights to deliver his blessings through our weaknesses, through our sins. So your choice, because he's gracious, is simply this. Will you trust yourself or will you trust God. Will you pretend to be God or will you humble yourself before the Almighty? That's your choice, friends. I urge you, trust the Lord because his blessings can never be secured through human effort. They can only be received as a gift of grace. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that confronts us with that. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. To all the Jacobs out there, it is the gift of God, the gift of God. Not a result of works, not a result of rock moving, so that no one may boast except who? God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I think that right now we would be remiss to just start talking to you about how much we trust you without stopping response to this word humbling ourselves before you before you have to humble us and confessing to you that we are men and women who strive we strive in finding spouses we strive in building churches we strive in discipling children we strive in paying bills we strive instead of saying Lord help we functionally declare, I got it. I got it. Thank you for good words that just expose the reality that we so don't. (laughs) We so don't got it. We're a mess. And so we thank you as a people who have been freshly humbled today, that you're not waiting till we get the merit of our humility up to par to bring in your blessing. But starting with Jesus Christ, you are a God who loves to lavish and deliver your blessings right through our weaknesses and sins if we are willing to bring them to you, to cast them on you, to simply say, God, help. We repent as your people right now of our Jacob-ness. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us a new dependence and trust that takes our cue from a crucified Savior who proves for the ages that God gives grace to the humble. Help us to cast our cares on you right now, even as we, we sing this final chorus as a prayer to you. Amen.